Bioceuticals is proud to present the seminar series, The Science of Ketogenesis, with Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, to be held in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth in October and November 2019. Join Professor D'Agostino as he focuses on nutritional ketosis research and how we can harness this physiological state to improve neurological health, biomarkers of metabolic health, and stress resilience. For more information and to register for this event, please click on Seminars and Symposiums under the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Dominic Diagostino. He's a tenured associate professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of South Florida. He's also a research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. His laboratory develops and tests nutritional strategies and metabolic-based supplements for neurological disorders, seizures, cancer, and metabolic wellness. He was a research investigator and crew member on NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operation and has personal interest in environmental medicine and methods to enhance safety and physiological resilience in extreme environments. His research is supported by the Office of Naval Research, Department of Defense, private organizations and foundations, and he's basically known as the Keto King. Welcome to FX Medicine, Dom, how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. I know it's a popular term, but I want to go right back to nutritional ketosis because I remember sure. when we learnt our um, physiology in nursing and we at no stage covered ketosis as having benefit. So can we do a quick review of this history um, and when did it start to be used for therapy? Like I remember epilepsy. But, but when did it start yeah. to be used as a diet for wellness or for, indeed, um, therapeutic intervention? Yeah, the clinical implementation of the ketogenic diet started uh, about a century ago, you know, a as a conventional uh, approach. It really mm. was the standard of care for uh, epilepsy, and it is today for drug-resistant epilepsy, but there was no drugs to control epilepsy 100 years ago. So it really was a, a very efficacious strategy to control a wide variety of seizure types. That's right. But in my learning, the primary fuel of the brain cells was always and only glucose. And then though I remember they said glutamine can, can act as a, as a secondary fuel, but never ketones which I find weird because it was used as a therapy, as you say, over 100 years ago. Yeah. Well, at the time, it wasn't really understood that in 100 years ago, in 19, the early 1920s, mm. it was not really understood that ketones were acting as a metabolic fuel. Uh. They, uh, But the diet did mimic the physiology of fasting. So uh, the Mayo Clinic really developed this diet uh, as a strategy to mimic the metabolic state of fasting, which produced these ketone bodies. And, and, and even back then, they th th thought of it as more or less a byproduct 
a secondary byproduct of something else that was happening in the body. Uh, I guess it was not until 1967 that Harvard Medical School, uh, in the lab of George Cahill, uh, discovered that ketone bodies were largely uh, the, the fuel that the brain was relying on in a fasting state or a starvation state. And about 70% of brain energy metabolism uh, was derived from ketone bodies. And it was a seminal study that really changed the way we thought about uh, brain energy metabolism. Because prior to 1967, uh, it was thought that glucose was really the exclusive mm. uh, fuel for the brain and maybe glutamine to a small extent and uh, or glutamate and maybe lactate, but they thought that was only, you know, maybe contributing maybe two to 5%. Oh. But to, to discover that 70% of brain energy metabolism could be derived from ketone bodies it really changed medical textbooks. Uh, but it didn't really take on. <laughs> this is what I find interesting because you're talking of a lag time of 30 years. Um, yeah. That's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it was really a, a few investigators who picked up on George Cahill's work. And uh, one, of, one of the investigators was Hans Krebs' student, uh, Dr. Richard Veach. And he's at the NIH and uh, he's up in years now, but really uh, dedicated his life to studying ketones as a, an energetic fuel, a super fuel, if you would. And and he was his the pub publications that he uh, had over decades. Really, I was drawn to those publications and the implications of this idea that we could you know, provide an alternative energy source in the form of ketones. Uh, but the only way to achieve it was with starvation or prolonged fasting or this high-fat ketogenic diet. And I think the the, the public fear of high fat, yeah. uh, which is part of the diet, really prevented the ketogenic diet from taking hold. And that's an interesting story with, with politics and a lot of bad science behind it. But we had a fear. Uh, we demonized fat for such a long time. And I think that kept the medical community from embracing the therapeutic potential of the ketogenic diet. Indeed, you were not a fan of the ketogenic diet at the beginning as well, were you? Uh, you know, not really. I, I, I thought of it as uh, I knew about it from the fitness industry as a rapid weight loss diet, as a fad diet. And it was in 2008 when I really got into studying anti-seizure effects that I discovered the literature on PubMed. And, and then since then, the last 10 years, there's been an explosion mm. of research, peer-reviewed research on PubMed, an explosion of Google search, too, <laughs> uh, for the diet. Yeah. So, uh, And I think to a large extent, the popularity of the ketogenic diet it's definitely due to influencers, you know, celebrities using the diet, but also the legitimacy has been kind of secured by the explosion of scientific publications yeah. uh, on the ketogenic diet. You just have to go to PubMed and, and search. Yeah. And that has been very interesting to me as a scientist. One of the things that I got at the beginning was the robust argument against it, saying it'll destroy kidneys and this is what happens with diabetics and Let's go into that. What's the difference between ketosis yeah. and ketoacidosis? Yeah, it's a good question. So ketoacidosis is a, a pathological condition that is almost exclusively associated 
with a deficiency of insulin. And that's, that's characteristic of type 1 diabetes, where the body does not make enough insulin. There's either a complete lack of insulin or insulin insufficiency. And in the context of, you know, a physiology where you cannot make insulin, when you, uh, when you're a type 1 diabetic and you don't inject insulin, basically the body becomes starved of energy, of glucose, because it cannot get glucose in the cells. So what it does as a survival mechanism is that you have a runaway ketogenesis. The liver makes massive amounts of ketones, and your blood glucose is very high on top of that. So you have very high ketones, uh, 10 times higher than what you would get on a, on a nutritional ketosis with normal physiology, and you have very high glucose, which produces an acidotic condition, and if it's not corrected with injecting insulin, fluids, and electrolytes, you will die of a diabetic coma. So if, you have an, if you're not a type 1 diabetic uh, and you follow a ketogenic diet or you fast, the, there is no really danger of getting into a state of ketoacidosis. And even if you are a type 1 diabetic, uh, my PhD student, for example, is type 1 diabetic and does quite well on a ketogenic diet because it keeps his blood glucose levels uh, very stable. And yeah. recently out of Harvard Medical School, uh, Dr. David Ludwig published uh, an article that basically demonstrated a low-carb ketogenic diet could be used for the meta metabolic management of type 1 diabetes, which is something I actually didn't even, uh, you know, consider talking about because it was such a controversial subject. But now that we have a publication to show that type 1 diabetics use much less insulin and can control their glucose much better on a lower carb ketogenic diet. So things have really, really changed over the last couple of years. Absolutely. It's so funny how there's this turnaround. I guess the reason for the turnaround, as you say, is these investigators, but the change in the in the minds of the scientists. There's got to be something for these questioning minds to go, hang on. For instance, you would just explain that it was the glucose really causing that acidotic condition, not the ketones, but the ketones were blamed. Yeah, yeah. How often do we see this? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, when you're in nutritional ketosis, your, your ketones are in the 1 to 2 millimolar range, not the 10 to 20 millimolar range, and your glucose is relatively low yeah. and stable. Whereas if you have type 1 diabetes, your glucose is out of control and can even get up to three to 400 milligrams per deciliter or in millimoles. That could be, you know, 10 millimoles or more. Yeah. And that makes your, that makes your blood essentially like sludge and it makes yeah. a very acidotic uh, and very dangerous condition, actually. So you mentioned diabetes type 1 diabetes mellitus type 1. Um, what are some of the other emerging applications of nutritional ketosis? Yeah, there are many, actually. Uh, so, well, the low-hanging fruit, I think, is really type 2 diabetes. Right. And that could, I mean, another term for that could be carbohydrate uh, intolerance, because essentially that's what's happening. You know, people with type 2 diabetes are consuming a level of carbohydrates that's keeping their blood sugar sustained and elevated and their insulin levels too. And there's a couple ways to correct that. One would be calorie restriction. 
you know, but uh, a more feasible approach would be uh, carbohydrate restriction, which would decrease the secretion of insulin and lower your blood glucose and the postprandial elevation of glucose too that accompanies a meal. And uh, and there's a number of investigators and organizations working on uh, treating this dietary disease, and I would call it a dietary disease with mm. diet instead mm. of treating a dietary disease with drugs, which really doesn't make any sense. Uh, it really makes sense to treat a dietary disease with with diet. Uh, so that and, and so many Americans, you know, really suffer from that and. Uh, weight loss too, really. I mean, uh, it's been been around for a long time using the ketogenic diet, but now we know of there are many different forms of the ketogenic diet, and we have a better understanding of the types of fats. In, in the United States here, hydrogenated fats were popular for a long time. Yeah. Uh, oils rich in omega-6 fatty acids, which are pro-inflammatory, were used ubiquitously in many different food products. And now, uh, you know, they're being minimized or limited. So we know how to formulate the ketogenic diet in ways that's healthy. And that can lead to uh, not only a weight loss, but a sustainment of that weight loss. You know, yeah. it's relatively easy to lose weight, but to to have a lifestyle or dietary plan to sustain that weight loss, uh, I really think is where low-carb and ketogenic diets really shine because they really help to regulate the appetite in a way that can moderate eating behavior to sustain that weight loss. So that's two of the big ones, type 2 diabetes and weight loss. Yeah, oh, there's so many others. I want to get into those. But So yeah. you said there's many forms of the ketogenic diet now. So it's not just a standard yeah. thing. It's really how you respond, how the person responds. So this would therefore always require testing, correct? Yeah, there's an art and a science to it, right? It used to be kind of like a cookie cutter approach for epilepsy uh, for many years. You know, you just put this amount of butter and and heavy cream, and you know, you, you mix a little egg, and, and it, it was very dairy based. Yeah. Now, you know, some people don't do very well on a dairy based ketogenic diet and do much better in, in a non dairy ketogenic mm. diet. But the classical ketogenic diet was 90% fat. And uh, and some of the emerging data, even in epilepsy, shows that a modified ketogenic diet, which is 60 to 70 percent fat uh, and, and more liberal in protein, can be just as efficacious for seizure management. And, and that particular diet, because it's less extreme and more palatable, can be used for a wide range of, of applications, too. Okay, but do you find that many people go too high with protein levels, which might interfere with growth signaling? It kicks you out of ketosis, too, once you get above. Like the Atkins diet, different forms of it, was really a high-protein diet. Mm. And people kind of misinterpreted the ketogenic diet as a high-protein diet, where really the original ketogenic diet was low in protein. It actually became problematic for pediatric population because it stunted their growth. Ah. Uh, so now instead of 8% or 10% protein for kids, they try to do more like 12 to 15% uh, which is still quite lower than the standard American diet, but uh, getting uh, a ketogenic diet in the 20 to 25% range of protein seems to be uh, work pretty well, uh, even for seizure control, weight management, and a variety of other things. And then obviously protein, you know, the obvious sort of go-to there would be meats. Um, what about vegans, vegetarians? Yeah. How do they cope with a ketogenic diet, which is um, have that moderate amount of protein in it? 
Yeah, I think it's challenging for uh, a vegan to do it, but uh, in the in the last couple of years, there's been the availability of various plant protein isolates. You know, everything yeah. from hemp to pumpkin seed to <laughs> rice and potato, even. So these can sort of be incorporated into food and food products and even baking powders to make uh, to supplement, you know, that protein and, and various nut nut butters and, and things like that. Uh, so vegetarian that diet that would allow eggs and uh, and a little bit of dairy. Yep. So that, that that's actually much easier. Yeah. So you have a. Uh, you know, you can make a variety of things with egg and, and egg proteins, uh, very good source of protein. So it becomes challenging with a, a more of a plant-based vegan diet. We, I do have a, a blog article, one of our first articles ever in ketonutrition.org. Our website was uh, described a plant-based ketogenic diet because so many people just think of bacon and eggs as yeah. a ketogenic diet. But it is evolving uh, to the point where different meal plans are being developed that would allow access to the ketogenic diet for vegans and vegetarians. Dom, what about uh, cancer? I, I've heard of the work of uh, Volta Longo uh, using the ketogenic diet in cancer. Can you tell me what's happening in the research area of its use in cancer? Sure. Yeah, there's that's a very exciting area of research. Uh, I was introduced into the ketogenic diet for cancer by Thomas Seyfried, who wrote the book Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. And uh, it's a very uh, in-depth scientific book explaining how metabolic damage or damage to the mitochondria can trigger the activation of oncogenes and uh, and ultimately, you know, lead to carcinogenesis and, and tumor formation. Uh, the idea would be, or the implications would be, that keeping our mitochondria healthy and our energy pathways healthy, healthy would preserve genomic stability and make it less likely if the cells are energized uh, and energy is, is very important for DNA repair. If the bioenergetic state of the cell is high, it's much less likely to suffer uh, insults that would then trigger uh, mutations that would cause cancer. Yeah. Uh, so this has implications not only for the treatment of cancer, but also for the prevention of cancer. So Walter Longo and many others are uh, doing clinical trials now. Uh, in 10 years ago, there was maybe one or two registered, government-registered clinical trials, maybe one or two. And now there's about 25 to 30 registered clinical trials, uh, ongoing trials, using the ketogenic diet uh, usually as an adjuvant, in some cases as a standalone therapy when standard of care has failed, yeah. but typically, you know, as sort of as an adjuvant. And there's many reasons why the ketogenic diet uh, works, uh, because it's not only about lowering blood glucose, and you often hear, starve your cancer of glucose, mm, you know, yeah, go on yeah. a ketogenic diet. I just look now, there's 31 yeah. clinical trials. So, uh the ketogenic diet reduces insulin and IGF-1 signaling, which drive cancer growth and proliferation. Uh, it reduces inflammation. It reduces angiogenesis. It reduces invasiveness and metastasis of the cancer. Uh, an interesting topic of cancer biologists is the alteration of gene expression by ketones. 
So ketones can actually activate various gene pathways that can prevent cancer from growing and spreading. And that's a very hot topic. Uh, The ketogenic diet also enhances anti-tumor immunity, which means that if you're in a state of nutritional ketosis, it makes the immune system more vigilant to identifying cancer and and helping your body uh, rid itself of, of that cancer. So that's another uh, wow. you know, benefit of the ketogenic diet. And it's protein sparing. So when yeah. your ketones are elevated, it prevents muscle tissue from being broken down. And I, that's a whole project that we have. It's a PhD project of my student looking at anti-cachexia effects of ketones. Yeah, which is really counterintuitive, one would think. You know, the yeah. the standard way would think you need more carbs to stop, you know, to provide more energy to stop cachexia. It's not necessarily so. You need to be protein sparing, muscle mass sparing. Yeah, and that's, that's how we could fast too. Yeah. So that's a really important consideration. If we fasted and we didn't make ketones, our body would catabolize the skeletal muscle to make glucose and we would waste away. But because we have, even a lean person has 20 or 30,000 calories of fat, mm. if we liberate that fat, then we make ketone bodies from the fat. And those ketone bodies prevent our body from needing massive amounts of glucose to run the brain and the heart. Because yep. your heart and your brain run really efficiently uh, off ketone bodies. So it's very uh, protein sparing. And that's probably why humans could withstand fairly long periods of, of starvation. Yeah. They could do quite well you know, in a state of fasting ketosis. Just something you mentioned before about the immune system in cancer. So do you know of any research that's showing, say, uh, a decrease in tumor-associated macrophages using the keto nutrition? I know TNF-alpha, IL-1-beta. Yeah. I mean, these pro-inflammatory uh, drivers... Hijackers of the immune system, yeah. Yeah, are are kind of knocked down. And the the sort of the, the natural uh, killer cells and, and various, and it can, it really depends on the individual patient. Yeah. But Adrian Sheck is doing a lot of work in this area, and we just started working in this area. But it tends to augment the immune system in a way that because it's knocking down some of the pro-inflammatory cytokines, the immune system becomes more sensitive to detecting uh, the presence uh, of cancer uh, mm. in the body. And that's sort of the ongoing theory. That's how it's playing out in the animal model work. And now uh, human human trials are looking at this. Dom, just going back to obesity, which is obviously, you know, convenience, our 21st century, it's the the scourge of, yeah. of health in our 21st century, quote unquote, living. And it's it's been said that our generation is going to be the longest living and perhaps we're not going to, our, our children aren't going to live as long. I was very interested by the work of Professor Robert Lustig, um, who is, you know, definite anti-sugar. He was, um, he told me about yeah. that we measure HbA1c, but indeed there's other um, lysine links, I think it was, uh, along the hemoglobin. Um, do you ever look further than just the standard testing in, when you're um, investigating the benefits of keto nutrition and, and the effects on glucose? You know, we don't go too far down into the weeds in, in that regard. What we do do uh, is look at, we do a very comprehensive cytokine assay where we look at 60 different, you know, cytokines. 
we do have a standard kit where we look at, you know, hemoglobin A1C, insulin, uh, you know, glucose, ketones, uh, you know, a lipid profile, and yeah, I mentioned insulin, and we look at all this, you know, in, in a snapshot, and triglycerides too, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that that we try to keep it relatively simple in regard to the metabolic profile because um, the other things are just kind of a little bit too variable, and if uh, and, and the cytokines too can be variable, but that's giving us a lot of insight into how the immune system is, is kind of augmented. Yeah. Uh, you know, we do have the tools for that, but we haven't really delved too deep into uh, uh, some of the other aspects. Well, I guess we we do in, in regards to global metabolomic profiling. So <laughs> we actually look at like, you know, up to 4,000 different metabolites. And typically you see a lot of things that don't make sense. But out of the 4,000, typically you see about 70 to 80 different metabolites that do shift wow. in really significant ways. So we're sitting on a lot of data right now. I can't really talk about, but no. we will be publishing soon where we essentially take the blood, we take muscle tissue, we take the liver, we take the brain, we take the heart, and we look at up to 4,000 different metabolites, you know, using a variety of, of different different approaches and, and also uh, bioinformatics to, to analyze that data to make sense of how it's shifting. Yeah. I, I can see the keto nutrition being quite useful even in things like cardiovascular disease where you the, the heart muscle needs energy. Um, you know, heart failure is a massive yeah. issue. Um, I could just see this being such a, a benefit. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Richard Veach, I mentioned him, the, the student of Hans Krebs, yeah. did work back in... Uh, uh, I think it was published about 20 years ago, showing the hydraulic efficiency of the heart's about 25% greater when your heart is burning ketones relative to glucose. So this was a profound uh, change, and, and especially since with ketones, you don't need insulin, that you can actually generate ATP without the presence of, of insulin. So uh, ketones are very good for the heart. The heart burns fatty acids really well. It burns ketones really well. And the brain, some argue the brain functions more efficiently off ketones than it does with glucose. Uh, we do know the aging brain gradually uses glucose less efficient, efficiently. You know, even in a healthy individual, the glucose metabolism in the brain will decrease with aging. And that's not the, the case with ketones. The ability of the aging brain to use ketones does not decline. Uh, right. with age. And this is work by Stephen Cunane in Canada. He's uh, shown this doing a dual PET scan. So that that's some pretty exciting work, uh, basically demonstrating that ketones could help maybe restore brain energy metabolism, you wow. know, that's associated with uh, cognitive decline with aging. You know, again, keto is never in the orthodox world considered for you know, dementia, which is a massive scourge in our society. It's a fear, indeed, for the future. Yeah, it, it is. And, uh, you know, we don't have a cure for Alzheimer's disease, which is uh, a terrible disease, and I've known people who've had it. Uh, so I, I think prevention is key, too. But uh, we do know that ketones offer the ability to increase uh, brain energy metabolism and help to uh, symptomatically 
uh, it, it can right now help with, with Alzheimer's disease. And I think there's different people have the etiology of Alzheimer's disease is largely unknown. And I think there's a subtype of, of Alzheimer's that's very responsive to these metabolic interventions. And I would say anywhere from 30 to 50% of people with Alzheimer's disease have a fairly significant, you know, response to a metabolic intervention like uh, diet, especially uh, ketones, elevating blood ketones. And this is a very active area of research right now. Some of it's published and some of it's uh, ongoing studies, clinical trials that are being conducted now that take several years before the final uh, data are collected. But I'm aware of some studies that, that look very, very encouraging. You were mentioning earlier that the types of oils that we use, um, you know, the, the different fatty acids makeups of, of the, the various oils that we use is changing over time. There was a really great film, That Sugar Film, which exposed that it was a political arena, a sort of um, support of the farming industry, the agricultural industry way back in the sort of 50s and 60s, which had this sort of high fructose yeah. corn syrup come as being the subsidised go-to cash crop for our farmers. Are you finding that that's changing, that the political landscape, the support, the actual farming practices are changing? Or is this from the other end, from the demand? Yeah, well, I think... Um you know, there's you know, so the supply. I mean, demand will dictate. Uh, you know, the suppliers. You yeah, know, as sure. uh, I'm, I'm on my farm right now, and so uh, we have a 24 acre farm here. Yeah. And uh, what we're deciding to grow is kind of dictated by the demand of the the stores around us. You right. know, what's selling, what what prices, what's selling. So we are actually considering growing uh, avocados here, you know, because yep. that that's in pretty high demand and, and they sell very well here. And, you know, uh, 10 years ago, that, that really wasn't the case. So uh, I, I do see a lot of low carb options in recipes around, especially in the Northeast, uh, but we're in Florida here, but I was up in the Northeast, a lot of gluten free options. Most restaurants in New York, you know, have these things. So uh, I grew up farming all my life, and we grew wheat and, and potatoes and all sorts of carbs. And I think the landscape is changing. Government is continuing to subsidize farmers uh, to grow certain crops and corn and wheat and, mm. and things. And uh, I think it's starting to shift where they're starting to subsidize more vegetables like uh, instead of grains. And I'm actually, you know, from the, the Agricultural Association starting to see various uh, subsidies for farmers to grow different types of crops that would be more in line with a less carbohydrates and less grains and more more vegetables that would be that could be part of a low carb ketogenic uh, sort of diet. Yeah. And that's interesting to see. And that has actually happened over the last five years, maybe 10 years, but wow. over the last five years, increased subsidies for different types of crops, uh, less subsidies for grains and, and more subsidies for uh, uh, vegetables that would be more in line with, with low-carb diet. That's an amazingly quick change for a, from a political landscape. <laughs> it's, sl it's slow, but it is changing in that way. And, and, uh, and it, it's driven by a number of factors, but, uh, it is starting to change. So, and that's good. And maybe I think there'll be a tipping point where, 
you know, as the change happens, the change will start to happen faster, uh, especially if it's uh, driven by the demand. Obviously, you see this sort of patient person, you know, you've got this avid interest in keto nutrition, so you're, you're sort of honed towards that, let's call it selection bias. But do you see that more and more the average American is becoming uh, interested in lessening their waistline and, and looking at options like keto nutrition? I, I think so. I live a little bit in the bubble of academia and and people that are more kind of up on this mm. on this area of science and and I definitely see it. I mean, in my travels, I run across uh, people who are just they they've heard about low carb and ketogenic diets and they're interested in understanding more. Uh, and people genuinely, become engaged and interested in things that can make them look better. Yeah. <laughs> Even, you know, I, I'm interested in making people healthier and feel better, but generally our society is very interested in looks and if it can make you lose weight and, and give you more energy, that will get their attention. And that's the kind of, that does happen. I mean, that's yeah. happened with me. Not everybody, the ketogenic diet is not for everybody. It's not a one size fits all. You really need to experiment and find out what works for you. But it's pretty clear what is not working. What's not working is processed carbohydrates yes. and sort of this processed food. So a shift towards this way of eating can really make a big difference in a person's health and well being. What about the shift in? As you say, academia. What about dietitians who, you know, traditionally it was carbs all the way. Um, we're still in Australia seeing this resistance. Indeed, a a dietitian, forward-thinking dietitian here, proposed um, to a a group, a study group, if you like, that they should be looking at keto nutrition for or could be looking at keto nutrition as an adjunct in cancer therapy. And he was booed off stage. Basically, do you find that the the orthodox teaching of nutrition is changing? Yeah, I think it's being driven uh, and it should be driven by the science. You know, the basic, not only the basic science, but the, the clinical science. And, you know, our big news net, one of the big news networks here is public radio, NPR, Science Friday, last Friday, had Dr. David Ludwig on from Harvard Medical School. And uh, his 20-minute segment was that not all calories are created equal. And he studies the low-carb diet and ketogenic diet for obesity and weight loss. And, you know, that was a nationally aired uh, radio program and now a podcast. And, and yesterday, uh, I was on uh, NPR, uh, on Florida Matters, NPR, WUSF, uh, with a dietitian who is really was trained conventionally mm. and she is kind of coming, you know, I didn't know how it was going to go during the interview <laughs> because I didn't know, uh, but uh, she was really warming up to low carb and ketogenic diets and actually acknowledges it now as a registered, she's a PhD and a registered dietitian as a very effective uh, weight loss and weight maintenance strategy. So, uh, so that was comforting. To, I, I thought maybe they were doing a point counterpoint, so, uh, <laughs> but it actually was a very, uh, a very you know, nice conversation to have, and and uh, and just acknowledging that this is uh, a viable strategy that is not detrimental to your health, and it actually has many health benefits. 
so so the landscape is changing and i and i i went through in my undergrad i went through a conventional registered dietitian nutrition science program and and uh the the diet was not looked looked upon fondly mm. but I, I think now nutrition programs because the diet is so popular in the media and people recognize that it does work and it really changes um uh, many aspects of your health that they are incorporating this into a discussion into nutrition programs and it will probably be part of the curriculum uh as things move along as the science emerges yeah and i think it should really be driven by the science and like i said there's an explosion of peer-reviewed science over the last 10 years but it takes about 10 years to change the medical textbooks and, yeah. the, and the nutrition science textbooks can keto nutrition be of benefit in um existing renal disease like especially further along in say type 2 diabetes when people are on insulin so you know your kidneys filter the blood and the more stuff you have in the blood <laughs> uh the, the harder it is on your kidneys right so there's you know there's a fear i think to some extent a legitimate fear of high protein diets uh for the kidneys and people who have pre-existing kidney disease and some people mistakenly think that the ketogenic diet is high protein and uh it's really not so uh and the, the ketones that are elevated in the blood are very mild metabolic uh acidos that the body can deal with very easily uh, if you were to sprint, you know, and run down the street, you would create a much stronger acid load in your blood than, than the ketogenic diet. Right. So it's not a, a stress to your kidneys. But what the ketogenic diet does to help your kidneys is clear that glucose out of your yep. blood. Yep. Or it just, just by virtue of decreasing the source of the glucose, that brings the glucose levels down. And that does a, a very a good thing for your kidneys. So, uh, high levels of glucose can destroy your kidneys. Uh, it, it really strains the filtration system of the kidneys mm. and stimulates a lot of pro-inflammatory processes that could damage uh, the, the filtration. And your, your glomerular filtration rate can rapidly go down You know, if you have uncontrolled uh, type 2 diabetes. And I think that could be uh, reversed and managed very effectively with a, a ketogenic diet. Ketones have also been described as the fourth macronutrient. What's this about? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think I've always thought of it about it that way, and and have mentioned it on on various podcasts. And I think I think the term's kind of starting to take hold. Uh, <laughs> the macronutrients are, you know, protein, carbohydrates, and fat. You know, classically that's the macronutrients. So now we have ketone bodies that could be in the form of, you know, beta-hydroxybutyrate salts and esters, and there's also ketogenic fats like uh, coconut oil-derived MCT oil. And, and ketones are calorie-containing molecules that can be consumed orally, and they give our body a source of energy. So we have to classify them, <laughs> and so I think it will be up to... Uh, you know, the the industry to figure out how to classify these calorie-containing molecules. Uh, in the early 1960s into the 70s, NASA looked at high-energy, uh, energy-dense space food, synthetic space food, and mm. they looked at things like 1,3-butanediol, which is one step away from a ketone, but it converts very rapidly to ketones in the body. And they didn't really know what to call it. You know, it was a uh, not an alcohol, it was a, a glycol or a diol. 
And now we have a, a molecules that are essentially the natural form of ketones that our body makes, and we can consume them, and they're calorie-containing. So uh, I, I think of them as like a super fuel. So yeah. we can consume them, and they can enhance metabolic processes in our body to give us energy. And uh, and I think they are something that we're just we're just on the cusp of understanding what would be optimal as far as what kind of ketone formulas you know would be optimal for different applications and how to use utilize these things most efficiently you you mentioned coconut oil which has been lambasted by many um cardiologists as being a <laughs> yeah. you know a cardiovascular risk in itself can you comment on that please and start to dispel this myth yeah sure uh well, coconut oil gets a bad rat because it is technically a saturated fat. And, you know, saturated fat has been demonized for decades, almost half a century. And it, a lot of it was driven by Ansel Keys and a lot of bad science um, uh, kind of contributed to that. But uh, coconut oil is really a healthy oil. It has many different properties to it. When you consume coconut oil, uh, it does get metabolized a bit differently. So instead of being packaged into chylomicrons, a good percentage of the oil can be transported directly to the liver and be oxidized uh, and be burnt more rapidly. And some of it is converted to ketone bodies more rapidly. So uh, fat in the form of coconut oil is less likely to be stored as fat in your body and more likely to go to be converted into energy uh, than, than other forms of long chain fats. Uh, there is some people fear that, you know, saturated fats can elevate your LDL cholesterol and that that could be uh, atherogenic or, or cause heart disease. And the support for that, there's very little, if any, support for that. Actually, coconut oil has a, a wide range of health benefits from converting to ketones. Lauric acid, a component of coconut oil, can boost your immune system. Uh, you can use coconut oil for a variety of different applications and uh uh, it's it's a healthy fat, and I mm. think the the data supports that. Yeah, and the signaling properties of ketones. Can you explain a little bit further about this? Sure, and that, that's a recent development. It, it did not exist when I started studying this ten years ago, but uh, over the last five to six years, we've identified beta hydroxybutyrate, yeah. one of the ketone molecules functions as an endogenous histone deacetylase inhibitor, essentially. What it means is that, uh, you know, we have histone deacetylation strengthens the bond between DNA and histones, uh, thereby repressing the genes in these regions. So if you have a histone deacetylase inhibitor, that can actually increase methylation and actually turn on uh, the expression of different genes. Mm. And ketones tend to turn on... uh, the expression of genes that have protective properties in our body. So they, they have uh, the ability to methylate. And uh, this is a new finding. We're studying this in the context of Kabuki syndrome. It's a rare disorder where ketones, uh, the ketone body, beta-hydroxybutyrate, has a therapeutic effect. So we're studying that. Uh, the ketone body, beta-hydroxybutyrate, also suppresses an inflammasome called the NLRP3 inflammasome that's related to autoimmune disorders and also age-related chronic disorders. 
So the ketone suppresses that inflammatory pathway uh, and thereby can suppress systemic inflammation associated with a wide variety of uh, age-related chronic diseases. So these are very hot areas of research right now. And it's important to acknowledge that the ketones are not working by altering energy metabolism. They're working more like a, a hormone mm. or a drug and impacting different different receptors and different pathways independent of metabolism. So that's a new and exciting area of research that we're involved in right now. So I'm going to I'm going to take this back to something that you've mentioned previously in podcasts and, and interviews um, and that is that you use keto nutrition and you found um, that your dermatitis just went. Are you now sort of I guess awakening to the fact that it might might not just be the fats that you're intaking as oh it's it's making my skin more lush, <laughs> um, but indeed it's having an anti-inflammatory signaling effect. Yeah, for for sure, and and it could be just like uh, elimination of things. You know, in, in a normal diet, I was eating uh, more dairy and and uh, I was eating grains. You know, ten years ago or more, yep. and I had eczema, which is a you know a, a skin problem that I suffered with uh, for a long time. And uh, it was only until I until I got sugar and grains out of my diet and decreased the amount of, of dairy protein. I still consume dairy every day, but more dairy fat. And not a little bit of dairy, a little bit of cheese here and there, but I think it was really lowering the carbohydrates and elevating my ketone bodies that rid my body of inflammation that I had uh, like ten years ago on a on a higher carb diet. So, and I think it's a combination of eliminating pro-inflammatory foods mm. and also elevating anti-inflammatory metabolites like ketones of the blood. And it just had a profound effect on my, my systemic inflammation because my HSC reactive protein is almost non-detectable now. And it was always kind of wow. in the high end of normal yeah. prior to doing this. And I really do think that keeping inflammation as low as possible, systemic inflammation is really an important thing for health and longevity uh, over time because inflammation can wreak havoc on your body and your joints and and even your brain, you know, over over time. Yeah. So I think you're doing your body a good thing by keeping following a nutrition program that keeps impl- inflammation low. And your skin will thank you too. Yeah. You've got obviously, you know, you've got a high level of intellect, a high level of of education. How does the average punter though start keto nutrition? Because I can see um there's some pitfalls. People might think, as you mentioned, cheese. You know, yeah. oh, it's high fat, so therefore it's good. What are the pitfalls that you see practitioners and indeed lay people doing? And where are the best resources that they can get that's really like up to the minute with the various types of keto diets? Yeah, you know, we publish in, in peer-reviewed journals and, and that's a good thing. But I think most importantly, over the last year or so, I, I started a blog and a website, ketonutrition.org, where I try to break down the science to to the point where it can be actionable for the average person. Like today, we published uh, a blog article, actually just within the last hour, called The Ketogenic Diet for Weight Loss, right? And it's really, uh, we have a chapter in a new ebook that really takes it step-by-step on how to implement this approach, you know, and uh, although I study more 
and neurological diseases and cancer, uh, I realized that most people kind of come to this approach for weight loss. So I spent probably a half a year just reading the research, reading what books are out there, and just kind of sat down and and worked on this with my assistant, uh, uh, Christy. And we, we come up with a chapter in, in a book called Fat Loss Forever. And in that, in that book, we have a, a chapter, The Ketogenic Diet for Weight Loss. So we are really working hard, not only in the lab, but outside the lab, to make this information more accessible uh, to people. So Keto Nutrition, our website has information. And, and on that website, we have a bunch of different links to other people's sites that we kind of vetted out and feel is really good information. There's a lot of bad information out there. So yeah. We try to weed through what's good and bad and, uh, and try to try to compile that into kind of uh, one website that, that has all the, all the links on there. And of course, and some of the podcasts that I do have show notes in there and there's show notes, you know, I talk about, talk about the ketogenic diet like this, but I have show notes to support some of the things that I'm talking about. And I think that helps people. Yeah. I've got to say, you, you talk about a poster child for keto nutrition. You're certainly that dumb. I have one last question for you though. And that is something sure. about the, the Institute that you work in. It's Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ken Ford, uh, who's an interesting, uh, academic uh, person. I mean, he's, he's probably one of the smartest people that I know. And he, he worked for NASA and he also worked for the president's defense science board for quite some time. He started this institute uh, as an expert in artificial intelligence. And uh, he actually, he had epilepsy growing up and he used the ketogenic diet for decades now uh, to manage that. And he was also a, a very high level wrestler. And, uh, but his, his main sort of focus was robotics and artificial intelligence. And he worked with DARPA, uh, on a number oh. of different projects, including, um, humanoid robots. <laughs> so as he developed various, uh, autonomous systems, he realized that it was equally important to enhance the human's capability to function in extreme environments. So a big part of the research uh, that the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition is doing is enhancing, you know, human uh, performance and resilience in extreme environments. And and that's, I play a role in that, as does my colleague, Dr. Don Kernagas. We were both uh, aquanauts in NASA's extreme environment mission operations. Yeah. So we have, we have that in common. So we really, I, I work with IHMC to develop strategies, including a ketogenic strategy to enhance warfighter performance, astronaut health and safety and things like that. So uh, check out their website. Also check out STEM Talk. IHMC interviews a lot of scientists uh, that study keto nutrition and astronauts and a number of different uh, uh, influential, influential individuals in the world that really cover a range of topics. So that's called STEM Talk Podcast, and there's also a lecture series. So you can find out more of IHM, more about IHMC from the lecture series and STEM Talk. This is brilliant stuff. I said one last question, and no, it's not going to be. <laughs> so uh, one thing, because you, you, like, you do scuba diving, correct? You, you, you do underwater exploration. I love it, yeah. Yeah. So do you find that keto nutrition, when you're talking about working with you know, high-level elite military personnel, 
do you find that keto nutrition might help with things like fear reactions, um, trauma recovery, things like that? Yeah, uh, I do. I think enhancing your metabolic resilience can make you uh, a better better in performing uh, cognitively and physically under austere environments mm-hmm. where you have limited food availability and also where the oxygen might be, the partial pressure of oxygen may be lower, for example, at altitude or yeah. higher in yeah. extreme environments where you're breathing high-pressure oxygen. Uh, and also many of the, you know, detrimental effects that could impact a warfighter have to do with, uh, systemic inflammation, you know, fatigue, recovery. So these are, these are why IHMC and other institutes are, are really looking at the effects of these nutritional interventions on performance and recovery because the ability to recover from intense, from trauma, from, uh, uh, you mentioned fear response. Uh, one of actually, we had a uh, an article published today in Journal of Online uh, Journal of, of Online Video Experiments on the anxiolytic effects of ketones. Uh, re- experimenting on using the elevated plus maze, so that looks at anxiety and fear reaction. And just today, uh, we published an article really demonstrating from a video uh, perspective, and, and we walk people through the entire experimental protocol, uh, how ketone supplementation, elevating ketones, can reduce the fear response and actually uh, make the, the, the anxiety and fear reaction attenuated in, in a number of model systems. So a, a lot of applications. Oh, I can see the big applications. I'm thinking even yep. mood disorders, personality disorders, breakdown, psychiatric disorders indeed. Yep, that's the next frontier. We actually, we're working on a, a review article for that and hope to have that published soon. So we've we recently submitted it. So uh, I post these things on social media, on Facebook or Twitter. So hopefully that review article will be published soon. And it's a good overview of the potential for nutrition with emphasis on, on ketogenic nutrition for uh, psychiatric uh, disorders. Indeed, you're coming back to Australia for a seminar series to discuss the science of nutritional ketosis in October, November 2019, correct? Yes, I'm very excited about that. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about what practitioners can expect to learn. Yeah, well, we're working on sort of the itinerary for that, and I want to hit on every possible angle of, of ketogenic nutrition and, and the various applications and really listening to and, and wanting to hear what the audience were sort of putting together the itinerary based on what people want to hear, right? So I think the, some of the low-hanging fruit would be weight loss and, of course, you know, type 2 diabetes, inflammation. Uh, my background is neurological diseases, um, uh, seizure disorders, and also cancer. And we have active programs and sort of all those things that I mentioned. And I think most importantly, too, I want to have, you know, specific talks on practical implementation and practical applications of this. Like, how do you do it? You know, start yeah. with this step. And, and here's an example of uh, a meal plan, you know, of a typical meal plan. If you were a vegetarian, here's an example of a meal plan for that. If you want to follow a plant-based ketogenic diet, so here is some examples of that. Here's how you measure your blood ketones. Here's some of the equipment that we use 
that's commercially available, things like that. Here's some of the, you know, ketone supplements and ketogenic foods that can help you along your journey uh, implementing this approach. So hope to hit on a wide range of things. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could talk to you for hours, and I think I will at the, at the seminar series. Um, I think I'm going to have to <laughs> I Shanghai. You do. I, I look I, forward to it. Well, I remember at the um, symposium, you were positively mobbed after your uh, stage presentation. It was very interesting to see. <laughs> I love seeing that that level of interest, and uh, and I know keto is becoming quite big over there, so mm. that's great to see. Too, and, and as it's taking hold of here, like every day, you know, you hear more and more about it. So, and uh, it's not just me. Yeah, I love the science that you're bringing to it. So you're validating the uses and, and saying, look, where it can be useful and where it can't. Dominic, yes, thank you yes. so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. As I said, I could talk to you for hours. There's so many other areas we could delve into. Maybe again, at another stage, you and I can uh, can hit it off on, uh, on FX Medicine. That sounds great. I'm ready anytime you are. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The age of personalised medicine has arrived. Be sure to check out our new FX Medicine podcast series, FX Omics with Dr. Mark Donoghue. Explore the genomic landscape and the clinical opportunities enabling you to offer truly personalised healthcare. care.